Welcome to Dose. This is Mike, your producer. It is Thursday, April 14th, 12 noon here in Los Angeles. Thanks to everyone joining us live. If you're not live and you're listening in the future, join us live every week here on Dose. Really excited for our guest today, Joey Santori. And if you have any plant questions or want to share your moment, cool experiences with plants, uh, you'll be taking calls later. So get in the queue. You're listening to music by Televangel. And your host, Abby Martin. Welcome to Dosed. This is your host, Abby Martin. Today, I am so excited to be talking about the world of plants. Thank you for bringing us in, Mike. So our planet is four and a half billion years old. And for about 80% of the Earth's existence, land plants did not exist at all. When they did creep out of the ocean with the help of fungi, it completely revolutionized biological life and diversity. The proliferation of land plants filled our atmosphere with oxygen. At the time, oxygen was a toxic gas to many of the bacterias and other small life forms on the surface, creating the blue planet we have today. And the introduction of massive amounts of oxygen on the surface caused an explosion of biodiversity, gave animals the ability to develop skeletons and grow magnitudes larger. The dominance of land plants, of course, created the conditions of human beings to evolve. But once Homo sapiens and our ancestor species came onto the scene, Local plants further made life for us possible as sources of food, medicine, clothing, weapons and tools, and even recreation. And human manipulation of plants, which led to agriculture and more efficient food sources, set the stage for the rise of modern society. For early humans, plants were honored and revered at the center of religious and cultural life. But today, so many of us are disconnected from the plant world that sustains everything we know and enjoy. We live in a moment where the phrase touch grass is a popular burn that comes from a real societal problem that too many of us are locked into the world of technology and screens without interacting in any way with the natural world around us. You know, as a young child, I always enjoyed the times I was able to garden with my mother and plant flowers and herbs in our yard. And as I grew older, I've always relished in the ancient wisdom of trees and plants. With all the darkness I focus on with my work, nature has always centered me and let me find peace in the world. 
and only a few years ago did I fully come to appreciate houseplants. I was living in a box with no windows in downtown Los Angeles, and one day I came home to a house filled with plants by my partner, Mike Preisner, and they became kind of my children, in a way. I became really invested in how they grew, how they responded and flourished. And you know, it's such an obvious but such a dosed thing to wrap your mind around, the fact that plants are the yin to our yang, that we've only been able to live and become who we are today because of what plants provide even the most basic element of life, giving us the air we breathe. And it's something we completely take for granted every day. That's why I wanted to do an episode with our guest today, Joey Santori, because he's been pretty successful in popularizing a love and interest in plants through his show, Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't, which you can watch on YouTube and also streaming on Means TV, where my film and TV series live as well. Racking up millions of views, Joey has no no doubt inspired a lot of people to not just learn about the plant world, but to engage with it themselves and explore and appreciate the living things growing all around them. Remember, we want you to call in and talk to Joey with your plant questions and anything that has dosed you regarding plants in your life. So stay tuned for that after our conversation. Joey Santori, thank you so much for joining us on Dosed. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Could you hear me okay? I got this external mic hooked up, and uh, I don't know if it'll come out in stereo or mono or what. Does it sound fine? You sound great. Crystal clear okay, on my right. end. Okay, cool. So, Joey, let's start from the beginning. I mean, you describe yourself as this uncredentialed botanist, so you don't have a degree in botany, yet clearly you are deeply immersed in its study. Is there a lesson here for people who want to pursue sciences like this without doing it through academia? Like, how did you get into it? Yeah, I, I got into it because I was, uh, well, I, I, fuck, I don't know. Where do you want to start? I mean, I, my <laughs> mom was taking me, my mom was taking me to the Field Museum in Chicago uh, from like age four on. So I grew up, you know, I, I love that fucking place. I mean, that really, that's where I got, you know, hooked on on a lot of the early concepts. And I, I recommend the Field Museum to anyone who lives in Chicago. If you can't afford it, just sneak in. You know, there's there's multiple ways to bullshit. I used to like I take like a rock, a piece of limestone, and you know, talk to the guys at the security desk. Tell them I was there to meet. I make up some bullshit name, and you know, and they'd say, "Oh, just go on and you know, go into because fucking museums should be free. That's what it comes just down to. The bring fact a that cool it costs gem. twenty. Just bring a cool gem and yeah. Well, you you act like you're supposed to meet someone there. You act like you're supposed to meet someone there, and you were going to ask them about it. And you know, they just oftentimes they would just wave me through. Um, And they even did that at Museum of Science and Industry once, which has nothing to do with natural history, which is kind of funny. (laughs) But anyway, you know, the the fact is these these are public institutions. They should be free. They used to be free. Now they've been kind of privatized, which is fucking terrible for society and turned into like you know theme parks for suburbanites to visit on the weekend. But anyway, so I was going to the field museum early on. And then, you know, I, I kind of grew up uh, this kind of angry. I had a fucked up childhood. I grew up kind of this angry, disenchanted kid listening to punk rock and uh, went to college for a year or two and realized I wasn't into it, just dropped out and then was riding freight trains around and just and I, I slowly just started to realize I didn't know shit about shit. And, uh, <laughs> and I just wanted to know. And I really I think that was, you know, I punk rock and all this stuff was good for a time being, but it really, after a while, I just realized it was kind of its own little cult anyway. And, you know, I, there was something, it didn't fill the void in me, you know, and, and, and looking at the natural world, which is really just the real world. I even like calling it the natural world Mm -hmm. because 
what we live in is is kind of unnatural. It's just this shit we made up. Um, the real world is what's out there, what's been out there for millions of years. I liked your synopsis, by the way. That was very on point. You know, I felt like I was right back, you know, studying the geologic time scale for the first Drawing time. In. So, right. So I went uh, anyway. Um, I rode freight trains for a while and uh, and already had this kind of interest. I you know while I was traveling around the country, uh, just being a bum, I just I would just go and learn. This is before smartphones, so if you wanted to use the internet, you had to go to the library. So we'd go to the library, use the internet, and then I just sit down at the table, uh, at like one of those big tables with like a pile of books that I wanted to, you know, I just picked out of the the aisles, and I would just you know got nothing to do anyway. I'm just being a bum, so I would just sit there for three hours and read and draw and. And that stuff kind of made me feel fulfilled, you know, it made me feel way more fulfilled than uh, a lot of other things at the time. And then, you know, at some point along that, that, uh, the three years of traveling, like I never stayed any place longer than two months. I realized um, I, I came upon an astronomy textbook and I have, I mean, I'm only minimally interested in astronomy today, but at that time it was this, you know, astronomy textbook I got out of the the trash or like a free pile at a community college. And I think it was in Tucson. And so I was, I read it while I was on a train in the middle of the Mojave desert. Um, and, uh, you know, we would, the train would stop a lot to side out, let other trains pass. And I just, I read about uh, spectroscopy and how you could take the light reflected off a planet and put it through a prism. And then you'd get this, this, um, this color signature of that would tell you what that planet's atmosphere was made out of. Um, and so that just kind of blew my mind. And I think learning about that just amazed me. And so then I realized I want, you know, it re- really kind of like made me realize how cool science could be and, and learning about a tangible reality. And then, uh, and then I, you know, after traveling for a while, I went back to, uh, I decided I was going to put roots down somewhere so I could make art and actually just focus more on growing as a, as a person rather than just rambling around. And when I did that, I went, uh, I applied for like a Pell Grant. I just wanted to be a bum. I know I didn't want to get some career or anything like that. I just wanted to learn. And so I went to City College of San Francisco and lasted a year there. And I fucking loved it. I was taking oceanography classes. I learned about the geologic time scale. No, no aim in mind of getting a degree. I had no fucking aim of getting a degree. Or I need to get these requisites done or any of that bullshit. I just, you just wanted, wanted to, to learn. learn. You just I just wanted, wanted to learn. learn and have fun and make the most out of being a fucking human being. Uh, on planet Earth in a, in a in a society that has these resources available, so that's what I did. And then um, maybe a year into it, just on a whim, I saw a railroad job open up, and I applied for that. And uh, just kind of shits and giggles. And to my surprise, they they hired me. And so uh, I did that, and I did that for 13 years. I said, you know, when I hired out, I said I'll do this till it sucks. Again, no, I'm not trying to get a career. I'm not trying to lock myself in anything. I'm not trying to. You know, I had just 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 along for the ride, and uh, and so I did that, and and the whole time while I was working, I mean, we were making good money. It was one of the jobs. I mean, it's kind of a shitty job now. Um, what the companies have done, and they're eventually going to eliminate um workers altogether and just try to run those trains on robots and and um autopilot. But uh, you know, at the time, it was still a good job, and it was great, and it was I loved it. It was like good, dirty outdoor work. And there was a lot of fucking cursing and you could be yourself and you're with all different kinds of people. And, you know, people would, guys would talk shit to you. There were some women too, but it was mostly men, but it was, there were actually a good amount of women. There was actually a trans, uh, trans lady working there the last uh, couple of years I was there. 
but it was it was mostly male and they were and but from all different backgrounds and they would you know they talk shit to you and that was kind of endearing when they stopped talking to you that's when you knew they didn't like you when they stopped busting your balls that's when they, you knew they didn't like you and that was something to worry about so i kind of had this like blue collar grizzled outlook on the world which kind of went well with my own i guess misanthropy or kind of somewhat skeptical and cynical but still positive beneath all that bullshit, you know, still positive beneath it. It kind of went well with that outlook. And then the whole time I was just making decent money um, and I would just stack it up. And, you know, I was driving like a fucking 1989 Honda Prelude that was like 900 bucks. Like I wasn't trying to get all this fancy shit. And, uh, and then I would just spend money funding my, my education afterwards. Cause I still wanted to continue what I was doing at the community college in San Francisco, which was learning about the world. And, um, and, uh, I think recently, you know, eventually just one thing led to another and I went down a fucking wormhole. And I just, I think the more, it's one of those things where every question you have, you get an, you know, you get an answer. Every answer you get opens up 10 opens more questions. Opens up a Pandora's box. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, and it was just yeah. so fascinating, man. I mean, everything I learned was just so, fa- I mean, the geologic time scale. I don't know why they don't teach that shit to third graders. I mean, that, it really should be. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff and it really is the origin story. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it is so interesting. And aren't we all along for the ride, Joey? I mean, when I was like in grammar school, I remember outdoor ed was such a transformative, life changing experience for me. It was only like a week outdoors and learning about nature and how the symbiosis of like your local natural world with how we integrate with it. And it just seems like it was all it just all fell by the wayside. It was like that never there was no no initiative after that. It's just all about math and um and stuff like that and i just feel like we were so separate ever from that ever right. since that moment on and it, and it was such an important foundation in my life that inspired me throughout my life and it's like why didn't we invest more why is this not a oh, simple yeah, man. thing for well, children you meet people you meet people who have spent their whole lives in a city and they go to the fucking mountains for four days and they're you know they talk about that time they went to the mountains yeah. for a year for years you just realize how much it affects them and it's like i mean there's yeah you, you you got all these research studies that show how important it is to put you know the human ape out back in in the, the quote-unquote natural world and get them into this shit and it's you know the way we have ways to quantify with research studies and show how good it is but it's you don't even need that i mean right. it's it's, in, it's within our fucking genome it's intrinsic it's like it's so and, obvious and, and that's what, yeah, and that's what really I think blows my mind. And I think that, uh, you know, I was hanging out with my friend Alan uh, yesterday. He's a mycologist. He's like a myco- mycology version of me, but he's way better at what he does. You know, he's <laughs> like, he's fucking, and he doesn't get pissed off like I do. Like I get, you know, I, <laughs> like, like I got a plant press with a bunch of dried plants uh, confiscated by these fucking meathead cops, customs cops with a double digit IQ yesterday. Uh, you know, and there's no threat. There's no pathogen threat. Um, you know, they just destroyed all these samples. I was going to, they're pressed. I, they had you all this information. From Mexico. Yeah. And I was going to, you know, submit them to the herbarium at the university near where I live. I mean, the, the research potential on those things is incredible. There was, I mean, I should have gotten a permit, but I didn't, it was only like, well, then you, you know, wouldn't 20. be the gorilla vigilante. Well, yeah, I, I'll, I'm going to do that next time. Yeah. But I mean, it was, there's, you know, there's whatever. Anyway, I should have done that. But regardless, it was, you know, and this, this fucking cop, I mean, beyond just doing his job, he was a fucking prick. And then, you know, I'm still like angry about that. You know, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's dude. like it's, I mean, what it's a little shift in my, you yeah. Can... And the, 
the other one threatened to shoot my dog. The other cop threatened Jesus to shoot Christ, my dog. Man. It was just, you know, it's this, well, well, they're fucking cops, you know? It's, yeah. You know. What are you, what are you going to do, man? I mean, a cab. Uh, so one thing that I kind of, when you were talking, it just made me think of this one interview that I did with an astrophysicist about climate change. And he was talking about how his students always say like, what's your favorite planet? You know, like, like talking about our solar system and just how fascinating it is. And he was just like, planet earth, like, duh. He's just like, like, it's like crazy. It's like, we don't <laughs> right. appreciate how incredible this planet is. You know, all the students are like, tell me about Jupiter and Saturn. He's like, it's unfucking livable. Like this is right. incredible. You know, I mean, I guess what brought you to this really incredible, like self-teaching of uh, of everything that you're talking about to being this YouTube personality going out there. I mean, the first thing I saw of you was like many years ago when you were trying to save that coyote. Um, and so it's really cool to come full circle today, Joey. But I guess like what made you transition into being a person that wants to teach other people about this? I, don't, I think, well, I don't know. My mom was a school teacher and I think it's fun. I mean, the, the best thing it's fun to teach people, but the, the most rewarding thing is to see how excited people get. I mean, I get emails from people saying, you know, you changed the way I look at the world. And I'm like, well, that's fucking great because I can share, you know, if I can share what learning about this stuff did for me with other people, which is, you know, I mean, I've been like six years sober. I don't drink anymore. I don't fucking I, this, this say, I mean, in, in many ways, this saved my life. I mean, mm-hmm. not like I would have drank myself to death. I wasn't like a serious alcoholic. I wasn't. I, you know, I think I just, I probably would have been a much more disenchanted and angry person. And I think learning about these things kind of gave me this, it helped me zoom out and it helped, it helped give me a, a greater concept of the world around me. And it's, I think that is, is what is most rewarding about learning about not just plants, but everything, fungi, cyanobacteria, yeah. lichens. I mean, it's, it gives you this chance to zoom out. I mean, there's all this emphasis right now on foraging and wild crafting. And yeah, it's great, I guess. I mean, I don't really care for it too much. I want the plants that have been through 10,000 years of human selective pressure and selective breeding to breed for nutrients and taste. But if that gets people into botany and stuff, that's cool. But that, you know, that's still along the lines of what can plants do for us? What purpose do they serve? And for me, the, what I get out of this is, is a little bit deeper, I guess. It's more philosophical. It's this, it's this sense of fulfillment like I finally found something that fills this void that I felt in myself, you know, since I was a kid, like this sense that, that I, I smelled bullshit since I was a kid. Like I knew there was something mm-hmm. fucking wrong with the society I lived in and was, there was something wrong with what we were doing. And the, I, I didn't get into the values that I saw people above me exuding when I was a kid. There was something that just didn't fucking feel right. And I, and I made me really mad and it, like philosophically angry, you know, and that's why punk rock and, getting into vandalism and doing graffiti and all this goofy shit when I was a kid hit the mark. But now I finally found something that fills that hole and that makes me feel better. And I think it's not just me. I don't think I'm an anomaly, obviously. I think it could do this for everyone. I think when you give it to people in the right context and you give it to people on the right plate, it it's, it's, Dare I say spiritually fulfilling? If you want oh, to get a little, oh, get a little weird. I get a little weird using that word spiritual after living in California for twenty years. But <laughs> hey, <laughs> but I mean, that's, really, what, that's what they are, man. They do fill fill the spiritual void. It really does aid your awakening of how we fit into the planet. You know, I mean, how everything's you feel, interconnected, yeah. Joey. I you, you let feel me connected start with to a, something. Let me, let me throw a tough question at you. I'm sure. I'm sure it's one that you get quite frequently. What is your favorite plant or plant family? I don't know. I like um, 
I like, uh, well, right now, I'm, I'm the, the fucking legume family is really, I've been amazed by. I mean, having just come back from Mexico, too, seeing the diversity down there, the legume family are the peas, right? It's the, the fucking, uh, you got five, five or six different subfamilies. Um, you know, the, the pea, the standard traditional pea flower is, is just, you get the banner petal, the wings, and the keel, but then you got the mimosoid subfamily and the sesalpinia subfamily, but they're fucking all over. They're all over the planet, except for mm-hmm. Antarctica. And they're, they're just so ecologically successful in deserts. They've got nitrogen-fixing bacteria in their roots. Many of them are toxic. Many of them are, are uh, uh, you know, foods are edible to, to humans and other mammals. Uh, many are pollinated by birds. You know, you'll see these really cool uh, red, red tubular flowers. I mean, there's all kinds of different variations on a theme. And I think that variations on a theme concept is what kind of stokes the imagination of, of any biologist, whether you're studying fucking ants or, or mushrooms or, or plants. And, and to see what is the result of evolution. I mean, evolution and ecology, evolution being how deep time and a series of mutations and selection by the environment, the environment being geology, uh, climate, elevation, presence of herbivores, presence of different pollinators. You know, is it pollinated by birds? There's a one plant in Mauritius that's pollinated by geckos. Um, wow. So all these different things are the environment. And they affect what mutations thrive and what what don't thrive. So it's not like survival of the fit. It's, it's, it's survival of what's most adaptable to that particular climate or or rather environment. Climate is environment. I, let's get into that gecko thing really quickly, because first of all, I had no idea peas were all over the planet and that they were so successful. Uh, I love peas. Um, but talk about, I mean, we all, we all know about different insects pollinating, but I've never heard of the gecko thing. Please yeah, there's a, there's a plant in the, there's a plant in the bellflower family called Nesocodon, N-E-S-O-C-O-D-O-N, Mauritianus. And, um, and it's it produces red nectar and it's pollinated. It's almost extinct, but I had the pleasure of seeing it at the Missouri Botanical Garden, um, where it's being cultivated ex situ out of out of habitat um, to to basically for conservation. And and this fucking thing is wild. I mean, if you Google it, uh, I've got a couple photos online. I took some nice some nice um, let's see some nice. Uh, yeah, some nice pictures of, but it's, it produces this red nectar. It grows on these cliffs, and it's pollinated by by uh, day geckos. So I think there's a, a research paper or two available on it. That's incredible. Um, I encourage people to if it, hopefully the transcript transcribes these terms correctly because you can follow along, especially after this is published, and Google some of this stuff yourself because you really do have to see it to believe it. A lot of these plants that we're going to get into, it's really fascinating stuff, you guys. I mean, this is all something that we learn early on. Of course, this is, uh, you know, photosynthesis, obviously the basis of so much of how this all works. But I think we kind of memory hole it, Joey, and we don't really understand or it's hard to really t- take stock of how fascinating that is and how it literally, like I said in the intro, I mean, this is why we are here is because of how plants have kind of become the yin to our yang or uh and just i guess just explain that process like i think the best way i've understood it is that like plants are like this little factory they take in water molecules strip them apart and then they use the sun as energy to power the factory would you say something like that is accurate or what what exactly is happening there you mean in photosynthesis yeah yeah photosynthesis 
Yeah, they're they're well, they're taking in carbon dioxide through the stomata, the the pores, which are mostly on the underside of the leaf, especially in like a hot, arid climate. Um, and that's why you'll see plants that have you know fuzzy undersides to their leaves. There's not much hair on the top of the leaf, but on the underside, the abaxial surface, you'll see a lot of hairs, and that's because that's where the ma- majority of the gas openings are. And it looks like a little coin purse. You know, it opens up to take in CO2, and as it takes in CO2, it can also transpire moisture. And that's why those hairs are there. Those hairs help keep that water in if, say, it's a hot and dry climate. So, um, yeah, so plants plants taking CO2, they absorb uh, moisture or water through the roots, and then you use the sun's energy to basically uh, split water molecules just to, to, I guess, yeah, just shave uh, water mo- shave electrons off water molecules. So, um you know, and there's all kinds of adaptations to this, too, to, to photosynthesis. I mean, that's the cool thing. You've got C4 photosynthesis, which a lot of the grasses do, which is kind of a more complex way. It's it's built on the fact that at uh, Rubisco, one of the enzymes, this might bore people to tears, but one of the enzymes in um, the leaves, the, the, the chloroplast, uh, bonds to oxygen. And so you, you can get... Um, you can get photoinhibition. So Rubisco can bond to oxygen um, rather than carbon dioxide. And so if there's a higher um, higher concentration of oxygen in the leaf, then there is CO2. And the reason there would be a higher concentration of oxygen is because the plant's not op- not opening its stomata as much because it doesn't because it's hot outside and it doesn't want to lose as much moisture. So um, the why way around that, that more, is why is that more common with gra- certain grasses? Why is C4 photosynthesis? Yeah. Well, grasses evolved C4 photosynthesis, oh. which is a way that they so they they basically they um they they shift the I'm gonna fuck this up, <laughs> but they they use they use something called bundle sheath cells, and that's where the Missouri it's it's pretty complex how they mm-hmm. do it actually. Like it's Khan Academy actually has a good for anyone that wants to delve further into this who doesn't go to school for it. Khan Academy is a good explanation of C4 photosynthesis, but they have a way of uh, basically shifting the photosynthesis to the bundle sheath cells, basically a deeper layer of the leaf where uh, C4 photo, where the photosynthetic process can occur, where Rubisco um, can have access to a higher concentration of carbon dioxide than oxygen. That's basically a, play, a, a deeper level. They By using an enzyme, they... I, I'm going to fuck this up. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, just, the pho- just photosynthesis yeah. in general is so fascinating. The fact that other types of plant species have adapted into different types of photosynthesis is just insane in itself without even having to understand. Right. Exactly An- another another example, which about. is some, another example, which is somewhat easy to understand than yeah. C4. I've done like five fucking refreshers on C4 photosynthesis. Like it's one of those things you have to do every three or four months. And it's still like, ah, fuck it's you. It's like neon Bitcoin. Okay. I, I, right. I still can't. I've, yeah, I've never messed with. I, I'm a <laughs> shitty gambler, but uh, but cam photosynthesis is, is easy to understand, and that's that's what cacti do, and a lot of succulents do. And oh, it's basically, please, please, give give me, give me, give me. I, what what, what they favorite. do is they so they open their stomates at night. They open those little coin purse openings in their cacti. Don't have leaves for the most part. Uh, they've got axillary leaf buds, which are their spines, um, but those don't do any photosyn- photosynthesizing. So they're photosynthesizing entirely through their stem. And um, a, like a few species of cacti have leaves, some of the odd ones like Mahuania and Pereskia, et cetera. But for the most part, 95% of cacti don't have leaves. They do, so they do cam photosynthesis. They take in carbon dioxide at night, store it in the form of malic acid. 
close their stomata during the day and then just basically like a closed system, do all the photosynthesis that they are able with the, the carbon dioxide that they stored up from the night before. And then uh, they'll open their car, their stomates again, those little coin purses uh, again at night. So they kind of, they basically seal themselves off completely. Well, not completely, but for the most part from the atmosphere. And the, the reason they do that is because if those stomata were open during the day in that hot environment, they'd, they'd be able to take in CO2, but they'd also be transpiring a lot of moisture, wow. that precious moisture. So, right. I mean, ca- cacti are fucking amazing. I mean, a lot of succulents are amazing. They're basically like little batteries. I think there was a research paper done on, on feral cactus, which is a species of barrel cactus, where it was, it was you know, basically stocked away in, in something akin to a closet for a few years no no light no water uh and then once it was brought out after a series of two or three years or something it it just it was alive it was just yeah it just kept photosynthesizing went back to metabolizing amazing wait are so are cacti like some of them like nocturnal because they do this operation at night because of how hot it is during the day or well the cam photosynthesis is is just i guess you could I, it's, I wouldn't really call it a nocturnal process. They're just taking in CO2 yeah. at night. But uh, but there's there's some cacti that bloom at night because they're pollinated by bats and moths. You know, any anytime you see a large white flower uh, in the neotropics or cloud forest, not just neotropics, but in a tropical environment, it's often pollinated um, at night by moths or bats. So, and there's quite a few that do that. That's so. Know, that's Central so... America. Whoa, dude. Tell me about plant systematics. Like, how how does it work? When did most of it happen? How much is still happening? Like, are there new species being born all the time? Yeah. So, plant systematics is just the, basically the study of plant evolution, and it's it's pretty closely allied to plant taxonomy, which is the taxonomy. You know, originally when uh, Linnaeus's goofy ass was putting it together, he was just classifying organisms. You know. Um, and so he would you know, he came up with this idea of genus and species, but shit was grouped kind of somewhat arbitrarily. I mean, he came up with the idea to group things uh, according to flower structure to reproductive parts and offended all the people, you know, in his society at the time because it was they, they were prudes. And I guess, you know, it was <laughs> the idea of grouping something, grouping things according to their genitals. But it, that ended up turning out being <laughs> turning out to be a pretty uh, consistent with evolution. A picture of 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 grouping plants, and so uh, you had plant taxonomy basically based around that. Things were grouped according to their flower structure and similarities in their flower structure. Um, and then more recently, with the advent of uh, molecular systematics, being able to sequence DNA. You know, it all started with Carrie Mullis taking acid on Highway One and, and envisioning a way to unzip that that DNA, that spiral DNA ladder, unzip it and now uh, use other enzymes to copy it and get it to basically amplify to produce copy itself and you know amplify the number of copies you have and then we were able to get a better look at at those genetic codes those series of A T's C's and G's. Um, it's actually a very interesting story. Yeah, that, like, Kerry Moss was kind of a wingnut, but he did. I mean, it, it's, it's supposedly and he testified this to him. He, he supposedly said this. His own testament that he was on acid driving down Highway One in California. Yeah, that, that sounds dangerous, dude. 
how he came up with polymerase chain reaction. Indeed, it does. <laughs> fucking, but hey, we got now we got PCR out of it. So polymerase chain reaction, <laughs> which of course is the same, you know, process. It's like the the most for for COVID testing. It's the most uh, reliable method. Um, you know, just basically amplifying the DNA and looking for the actual signature of the virus. But you could do the same thing for different gene regions of of plants. And so you get, you get that genetic barcode, that series of ATCs and Gs, and you're able to compare, um, you know, molecular sequences of a certain gene region located somewhere on the gene, the genome of plants. And you can see how closely related they are. You're just comparing those series of ATCs and Gs. And so after that was uh, invented, then we were able to realize that some of the original um, groupings that we had based, that we had formerly based on flower structure were actually not correct and things needed to be shifted. But for the most part, they were flowers, reproductive structures were uh, uh, consistent enough with evolution that most of those groupings were correct. But then upon further looking at things, we'd realize, oh, okay, this plant uh, is not in this family. It's actually in this family. You know, they're still when in the same was that order. revelation. One, what year was that? Uh, PCR, I believe, was invented in the 80s. That's when Kerry Mills came up with it. And then uh, it started becoming more common in the late 90s, the mid to late 90s. And then in the 2000s is when a bunch of these, this kind of revolution happened and all these, you know, things got shifted around to different families and new names were put on them, new new genera names, things were put into new, you know, genera, even, et cetera. Damn. And, so all and this new classification is pretty recent. I mean, th- this yeah, is... Yeah, pretty it, recent, it, yeah. It goes along with just another thing that I'm constantly blown away by, which is like, you know, I think compared to like the ocean, I think everyone's pretty much aware that the deep ocean is a big mystery. You know, every couple of months we'll send this submarine, we'll discover new species. Every year, hundreds of new classifications of like marine life are discovered, which kind of makes sense because people are like, oh, well, the ocean's just super deep. It's dark. It's inaccessible. Like even our robotics, it's like hard to navigate down there. It's really difficult to explore. But far less people are aware that there are also thousands of plant species here on land that we have yet to discover, Joey. And it's yeah. just fascinating. I mean, how is it that so many life forms, for the most part, that are accessible to humans are not classified yet? Like, how big is this world? Well, I think a lot of the, with plants especially, a lot of the stuff is that people just aren't looking. I mean, a friend of mine just discovered a new species of uh, monkey flower. In the genus, uh, I think it was Erythranth, in the mountains of, in the mountains of, uh, I think it was Death Valley, mountains of Inyo County, California. And he was just, you know, he fucking hikes these long distances up mountains where no one else goes, and he finds all this crazy shit. I mean, he's found Clovis points before, uh, you know, like the older, the really old arrowheads. Um, it's cool too. He does. He just leaves them there. He doesn't take them. He'll like mark the GPS point and then just leave it there, get a photo of it, whatever. But, uh, but he was up hiking around there and he found, he found, a, I mean, he knows his botany and he found a plant that he didn't, he didn't recognize. And so he collected a little piece of it and pressed it just like the pressings I had that that meathead cop with the intelligence of a doorknob uh, destroyed yesterday. And, uh, and he, he sent it to a guy who more formally and professionally studies that genus. And it turned out to be a new, a new species. Um, so, incredible. you know, it, this stuff happens all the time, you know. I mean, plants plants mutate pretty readily. They can double their uh, the copies of chromosomes they have pretty pretty readily. Whole genome duplication, and that's a pretty. I mean, that's what gives plants a, a, an edge above 
animals. Animals can't do that. I mean, animals are, for the most part, entirely diploid. They got only two mm-hmm. copies of chromosomes, and that's it. Plants can have upwards of of four, six, uh, some uh, some even have a thousand copies of of their of each chromosome. So when you've got more copies of of chromosome, you got more copies of a gene. You have more to work with, and that enables you. Now, what machinery turns on and off those genes, and what you know, you, you've got so many different copies of a gene. The copies vary from each other. Some are disadvantageous. Some are advantageous. How, are, what are you are they talking about propagation, for? like the like the ability to just propagate better than animals? Yeah, I mean, well, well, yeah. well, plants when they reproduce, if they're polyploid, they can these these subtle mutations pop up. I'm just, I guess, I'm just kind of paving the way for the mm-hmm. the, the segue here is that these subtle mutations can occur very easily uh, in plants as compared to animals, and so these subtle mutations can say you get a leaf uh, that has suddenly you get a an allele, a copy of a gene, a version of a gene that codes for hairier leaves than the rest, and then at the same time the climate is starting to dry out. Uh, as as happens, you know, uh, not at the rate that we're doing it after we've been pumping all the fucking CO2 in the atmosphere, but the climate <laughs> is always changing. You know, what those Republican grandpas say is true. There's still shit for brains. They're leaving out a, the, the big picture here is that it's happening really fast right now, but the climate always is changing. And so let's say the climate on a mountain is changing and becoming drier at the same time that this certain species of plant is has now got some individuals in the population that are producing hairier leaves and so those uh, individuals are going to be more resistant to drought. And they're going to be more resistant to that arid climate. They're going to be better able to tolerate it uh, because they've got these hairier leaves. And so then just like the same way humans can breed, you know, 500 different dog breeds from the same ancient species of wolf, the environment will end up selecting for uh, different traits in a plant and eventually uh, you know that trait gets accentuated so much just like the same way you get all these weed bros you know creating these strains of cannabis that are ridiculous that so covered in <laughs> sticky glands they would never survive in nature they would just rot the you know you get that trait accentuated um that trait for hairier leaves at a plant that's growing on a dry mountain an increasingly drying mountain and soon enough you know 10, 20, 30, 40,000 years down the line, maybe even longer, now you've got a plant that's like really hairy. The leaves are so hairy, they're white. Um, they don't look anything like the, they look much different and, you know, discernibly different from the plant, the, the species that they, the ancestral species that they evolved from, that this trait evolved from. Um, and so that's kind of how speciation occurs. I mean, there's a plant in, uh, in the Mojave Desert called Funeral Sage, it doesn't, you can't even see any green on the leaves. The leaves are just entirely white. Salvia funeraria. Wow. And it grows out of fucking limestone rocks. I mean, it's one of the wow. most incredible. And the flowers are tiny. And of course, having smaller flowers, the flowers aren't hairy. They can't be. They need to be, they need to be attractive to pollinators and get pollinated. And so the best the flowers can do to cope with that drying, that dry climate is, is shrink. So, it's got these tiny purple flowers coming out of this inflorescence, just a fancy word for a compound flower. And the leaves are just entirely covered in, in white hairs. I mean, the leaves look like pointy Q-tips. It's, it's ridiculous, you know. And this thing is, it's a perennial shrub that grows out of, directly out of cracks in these 400 million year old limestone. Well, I always wonder, cliffs. like every time I'm hiking and I'll see like a tree just growing out of what looks like a rock. And it's like, how oh, the yeah. hell? Oh like, yeah, it's incredible. How the hell does this happen? It's so I cool. There's a. I was in Saltillo, uh, Coahuila, Mexico yesterday, 
and uh, we were just walking around downtown. I was looking for some um, for some stuff to buy my kid, you know, my kid and my partner when I was <laughs> on my way back. And uh, we went to like a, I got her like this Serape thing, whatever. So we're walking around, uh, you know, the, the city of Saltillo, and I noticed these plants growing out of, you'll see this in Oaxaca City too, these these old buildings, old, like 100, 150-year-old buildings, beautiful buildings, abandoned decrepit adobe or stucco or something with this cool architecture to them only one story tall and they got these cracks in them and there's just this stuff growing out of it and i you know i always looking at plants i can't i mean that's the one thing i'm honed in on so i went and looked at what it is it turns out it's a species called rock nettle a native plant in wow. the family loisaceae and it's just growing out of these these cracks in the wall and i noticed i we were walking around waiting for this spot to open up and uh and so we were walking around, we walked a few blocks, and I realized this plant is everywhere. It's growing out of all the fucking buildings. And um, some are flowering. I mean, it's it's a native plant that normally grows out of cliffs and rock walls, and it's adapting uh, to human infrastructure, getting doused with pollution, um, you know, probably getting pulled, whatever, it just and it's thriving. I mean, it's everywhere. And then, of course, when you crack one of those fruit capsules open, because every flower uh, if it's pollinated, will mature into a fruit. And the fruit, in this case, is just a, I don't know, maybe a quarter inch long little, looks like a little vase, like a little papery brown vase. You crack it open and the seeds, all these dozens, hundreds of seeds come out and they're tiny. They're like little dust specks. But if you look at them with a hand lens, you can see there, those are actual seeds. And, and they probably just easily get carried off on a strong wind. And they land in a crack somewhere, and then it rains. The water trickles right down the facade of that building into that crack. That thing germinates. Uh, it's so adapted to growing in rock walls, it sends its roots right into that crack, just exploits wherever it can. Um, and because it's growing yeah. in a rock wall, I mean, there's no there's whatever moisture is in there. It's it's not like it's the roots going to lose moisture. It's basically sealed in that crack, you know. And then well, the, I you guess end that's what I always this, thought is that the root system had to be. I mean, maybe not with just normal plants that you're talking about, but like I trees obviously the root system is so extensive it's always so perplexing right. like how the hell are these root structures even operating like in yeah, these I mean I've, I've thought about that all I've thought about that all the time you know and I don't <laughs> really understand there's people who study this stuff I mean that's the thing it's you know you'll ask people some of this expert next right you'll ask people some of this stuff I mean just it's amazing how much we still don't know um well, let's yeah, talk I, about you, you're talking about adaptability, and this is really interesting because the fact I had no idea that plants were able to evolve on so much more rapidly than, let's say, animals. I mean, the fact that the adaptability of plants is so powerful, like we know, Joey, that long after humans are gone from the earth, like plants obviously are going to be surviving. When most mm -hmm. all mammals will be extinct, plants will always find a way to carry on. And another thing about adaptability, like you, you know, I, I, do you live in Oakland or? No, I, I'm, okay. I'm, I left California. I live in the desert of West Texas okay. now. Because there was this one video of you like exploring this really crazy industrial area of Oakland where it's just basically like trash everywhere. And yet you were able to find all these different plant species that were just thriving in that environment, which was just so, so incredible to see because they will persevere. No matter how much yeah, they're, they're trash everywhere. we uh, we accumulate on this planet, Joey. <laughs> so that's what I think is good to teach, show people. I mean, that's what I, like what I was going to talk about yesterday with my friend Alan. I mean, he's like he's like the mushroom version of me, but better at it. And he's just, I mean, he, he just 
he didn't go to school and we were talking we were like driving through northern mexico and northern mexico's fucked up and there's a lot of corruption there's a lot of crime narco activity we saw like four different wildfire wildfires there's trash everywhere it's poverty there's lack of education lack of opportunity we we're just talking about you know the fucking human condition just why why are we still here you know like why mm-hmm. why do we why have we not had why do we not so many of us still don't have this urge to like take care of the collective you know, to fucking, when you take care of the collective, even if you don't give a shit about other people, you're just a selfish prick. There's still a selfish reason to do that. You want other people to do well, so they're not going to come take your shit. You want other people to do well right, because right. the whole collective thrives. You don't want any fucking stragglers. You know, you don't want any people falling through the, the cracks. And I was just kind of asking, I'm like, why the fuck are we still here? Like, what the fuck is wrong with this? This bipedal species of primate, we can't get our fucking value system together. I mean, this myopia, this short-sightedness, this lack of perspective this this inability to zoom out and see the bigger picture and his ample his his answer was simple he's like i just i don't think there's enough people looking at mushrooms and plants and I mean, rocks straight shit, up, you know? and i was and, uh, and i was up. like you know what i was like yeah you know what that's that's pretty uh you know being into this shit keeps you out of trouble keeps you from looking at other shit it keeps you from getting into dumb shit whether it's fucking narcotics or you know investment banking or whatever the fuck you know it keeps you it, it's uh yeah i don't know and i just well, I, that's why i want to share this with people because i think it's it, it's not just about oh what can this plant do if i put it in my ass can it get me high oh can i make a <laughs> can i make a potion out of this and even though i'm not sick i just want to play fucking alchemist and i'll make a potion out of it and maybe i can or like can i forge this root it tastes like shit and it's mildly toxic but hey i get the like cosplay that I'm foraging. It's not just about that. That's good. Those are good gateway drugs in the botany, but there's something more grandiose there and there's something more fulfilling there. And it is, it's getting that bigger picture. It's understanding things through the frame of evolution and ecology and how you fit into it and just gaining a a greater in doing that. You'll gain a greater reverence for the world around you, a greater perspective on yourself and a sense of humility uh, in many cases too. I mean, most people I know who study this stuff are so zoomed in on it and in love with it and fulfilled by it. They, there's an innate sense of humility, I think, that comes with it. Not always. There's a lot of pricks in academia. Uh, there's a lot of a lot more great people in academia, but uh, you know, obviously, the, there's there are people in academia who have a lot of ego. But but generally speaking, most people who study this stuff, there's there is a reverence, there's a love. It's not just a career. It's not just oh, I, I went into botany because I couldn't, I couldn't, you know. I was working at a used car dealership or or managing a fucking Denny's before. So now I decided I go to school for botany. Like people study this stuff. People study natural sciences because I think there's a a passion for it, you know, and that passion. That that is us. I mean, again, it's like, like you said at the beginning, this isn't something that we call the natural world. This is the world. We are the ones who created this artificial separation between us and that. And it kills me, Joey, every time I'm out in nature, you know, I get why people trash a, a fucking parking lot of a 7-Eleven. It's like, whatever, it's all fucking piles of concrete over shit and like we've <laughs> already fucking... Like, destroyed the, like we've already paved over like whatever the hell this was, it's gone. Because that already is, is litter. That shit how is, is litter. How is it possible that these, these assholes will go somewhere like Yellowstone or Yosemite and then just trat? Like how on earth does someone go to a place that is full of such majestic splendor looking... You can either zoom out, zoom in. The macro or the micro. It's like no matter where you are, you're there. And like you are humbled by just being in the presence of such beauty. And then you just fucking throw shit on the ground and leave it. It's like I lost. cannot. They, just, they lost. You know, they, they don't have any it. context. They don't have any context yet. They're lost. They don't know any better way. No one showed them a better way. They just 
they don't uh they're disconnected you know they're kind of they're stuck in that death cult mentality still i guess that might sound pretentious and fucking whatever but that's really my yeah you know that's my what i think and that's what i was thinking about like yesterday for instance when this fucking cop was you know giving me just being a prick and just give me this rundown yeah they made me pay like a 300 dollars fine or whatever i was like this guy has no idea what this stuff is like how cool this shit is i mean i had <laughs> right i, had wish, I could, wish you could sit down and just be like look man like it's like look man this is not yeah this isn't like i'm not doing this to like collect things for myself i'm not doing this to like <laughs> so i can hang them on my fucking wall this is like these are going into a research institution so other people who might want to study these and then of course if that some someone needs genetic material off that because they're doing a phylogeny they want to understand the family tree of that certain genus or family now they have material to sequence it so you know, I, I just, I, I think, uh, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of people, we're fucking lost. I mean, really, we're the, we're the lost ape as, as yeah, a species right now. That's what we are. We have no fucking context for the bigger picture. No, and it's a shame. And that's kind of what, it, it's it's the result of, of not just, you know, a fucked up education system and 40 years of defunding education and privatizing everything and living in a consumer society where the values are just, you know, acquire all this shit you don't need so you can compare yourself to other people. And now with social media, it's, you can create this fake persona. You can pose, you can create this, you know, this image of who you are that may not be real and you can compare it with other people and show all the good and none of the bad. And then look at other people's selfies and make yourself feel bad about that. I mean, that's a fucking ultimate distraction. It's it's just wanton nonsense, you know, dude. And it, and it's designed to tap into the deepest, uh, you know, the self-consciousness of our psyche and it's really fucked up because they know exactly how to manipulate us psychologically and and let me just throw this at you because you were talking about um you know dot like breeding dogs now fucking crazy does it like a wolf can turn into a chihuahua or something you know like uh, over generations of like breeding and stuff like that this is something that tripped the fuck out of me um and and it goes back to our disconnection with what the food that we eat, like where it comes from, how it all evolved, like agriculturally. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Romanesco, broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kale, and cauliflower. Oh, yeah. All, all of the same. them. All, all of the them species. are from the same goddamn plant. Right. That's the, And then when I'm like, I would give these presentations intermittently or, you know, I was doing presentations last year for my friend's publishing company. We had like four classes I taught. I just showed photos and and that was one of the examples I used in teaching how evolution or talking about evolution, how cool it is. I mean, look at the variations you can get within a few generations uh, on a, on a variations on a theme that you can get. The theme being the morphology of this plant, how it looks. You get all these different fucking, I mean, dogs, uh, cannabis, broccoli, all that. It's, it's really easy with plants, though, versus mammals because plants have a shorter generation. So every time that generation reproduces and produces offspring, you get you shake up that gene bag again. You know, you get all that shuffle around those genes, recessive alleles come out. You know, you're basically coming out with this different uh, this whole you shuffle around these genes. You come out with all these different individuals, these zygotes that have a, a different code than the parent. You know, similar enough, the same species, of course, but a different code, you know, so they might have different traits. And so, I mean, that's how people bred you know, broccoli and Brussels sprouts from the same How ancestral long, species. Like, of something people. like that take. And it, do you ever think back on like every you time? You do it pretty do... quick. I mean, fuck with plants. Yeah, Jesus Christ. It's, it's like, especially if you got like a, if it's an annual plant, not a perennial. Yeah. So it only lives for one season. Annuals mutate really quickly. You go to the Mojave Desert, 
most of the plants are annuals. Most of the wildflowers, they're all annuals. So they, they seed germinates. The seed might live in the soil dormant for 10 years or one year or 20 years. You, it, finally, whatever the germination inhibitors are, that seed germinates. Uh, it grows really fast. It lives for a total of three months, maybe. Flowers immediately, like a month or two after germinating, uh, often produces lots of flowers, shit tons of seed then because of that. And then all those seeds have a different combination than a different genetic combination, slightly different than the, the parent plant, you know. And within well, those, one or two will germinate that look completely different from the rest. And so then if you're a human breeding these things, you'll take that, those one or two individuals and you'll breed those that, that look, say they produce white flowers instead of purple. So now you've got, I mean, it's just Mendelian genetics, you know. So now you've got uh, the next generation, you've got five plants that produce white flowers, but you've still got 40 plants that produce the old purple flowers. So you get rid of the purple and you breed those four or five that have white flowers. Next generation, now you've got 10 or 20 plants that produce white flowers and only 20 that produce purple. You throw out the 20 and so on and so on. You keep doing that. And that's, I mean, humans have done that. You could do that really quick. I mean, again, the cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. The is Brussels a great sprout example. shit is nuts, though, because Brussels sprouts grow like their own tree. I mean, it looks complete. I could see broccoli, cauliflower. You could see kind of the resemblance, but ca- I mean, kale is kind of mind blowing to right. cabbage, of course. But Brussels sprouts, like what? Look, I had, to, I had to see a plant right. again. You have again. to see this shit. You have to look this up. Brassica oleracea. Is that? Am I saying that right? Yeah, Brascola Racy. However, oh, it lands a dead language. You can so pronounce it. You can pronounce it however you want. My friends in Mexico <laughs> that speak Spanish, they pronounce shit wildly different from the way I would, but I still know what they're talking about. You Look know? this up because you really have to see it to believe it. Um, do you ever think back on that? Like just how everything agriculturally evolved? Like like the first person to be like, how, what is this going to do for me? Like <laughs> like the first people, like you know, indigenous tribal communities who are just like we need to fucking figure out what is all local to us and how it's going to like interact with us like is it going to be medicine is it going to be well, food and it's like how yeah, many people I mean, like died like experimentally just figuring out what the hell see, that's, is surrounding that's you i think i think yeah probably a lot the thing is most fruits you'll have poisonous plants plants that produce poisonous leaves but edible fruits and obviously the adaptive benefit is that at least if they're pollinated by a mammal. Birds are a different story. Birds can eat some shit that we can't, that would kill us, you know, that doesn't harm them. Capsaicin was meant to deter mammals. It doesn't affect birds. So birds are the main dispersers of chili peppers, or at least were, evolutionary, evolutionarily speaking. But, um, oh, fuck, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, I mean, you know, the, the, it's, humans have had this connection with plants ever since, you know, obviously the agriculture evolved i mean we've been doing this for years so you know you've got all the fucking once you've got uh the hunter-gatherer things not going on anymore you know it's died down a little bit now we're a little bit more stable we're irrigating fields we're diverting creeks and waterways and we're breeding plants now you got more time to fuck around and uh and play with these things and i think it's a rewarding process too i mean obviously it is it's it's yeah so that's what so in a really quick, short amount of time, 10,000 years isn't that long. It's a blink of an eye. To us, that seems, you know, phenomenally long. But geologically speaking, the geologic time scale, it's a blink of an eye. 10,000 years, you could do a lot of wild shit when you're just sitting around, you know, mixing things up, uh, breeding things. If you're, you know, I got friends that actually, like one of my friends breeds agaves. He'll take different species of agaves. He'll take the stamen, insert it in the, the stigma of another uh, plant or he'll in some cases if the plants aren't blooming at the same time he'll freeze the pollen and take it out you know wait f- 
five months for the next species he wants to cross it with the bloom. That's so badass. I mean, agave is so nuts as well. And you actually, you posted about this agave plant in northern Mexico, which was yeah. incredible because it lives for decades before it flowers and then it immediately dies. Like, yeah, is so, it literally just building up energy that entire time to flower? Like, is it yeah, charging up yeah. with the sun for 30 years before it can create the flower to reproduce? That's because what they do. It seems like That's an inefficient but it seems almost inefficient because why well, does it need that much time? How is this flower successful or how well, is the plant successful? The, what makes it, what makes it so uh, successful, ecologically successful, there's quite a few plants that do this too. Frazera speciosa, which grows in the high altitude, you know, 10,000 feet, 9,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains. Actually, maybe it's lower depending on what latitude you're at. I think the higher latitude you go, you get much colder climates at lower altitudes. But anyway, it's a high, you know, alpine plant, Fraseria speciosa. Uh, it's in the Gentian family. Same thing. It's monocarpic. It lives for, in some cases, 50 years, flowers once. And, but when it does it, it's stored up all that energy that the flower, the flower is not just these, you know, it doesn't produce just a couple dozen flowers and that's it. It produces this massive fucking totem pole of, of nectar that's... Wow. That I mean, it just ensure basically what it's doing is, is it's producing such a copious amount of flowers and a copious amount of, ne- amount of nectar that it's ensuring that it's not going to not get pollinated. You know, it's ensuring that it's going to get hit uh, and that it's going to get uh, visited by um, it's going to get visited by w- whatever insects are flying around. So it's like the cicada. It's like the the cicada of the flower world, like takes 30 years, just blooms once. And it's like, all right, putting putting it all out there. Right. It just it just kind of overwhelms, you know, and so now you've produced all these flowers. I mean, in the case of like agave gentrii, which is that was flowering at like 10,000 feet. Again, 10,000 feet at a lower latitude is 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 not that cold. I mean, you can get frost up there and get some snow sometimes, but it's still uh, it's you know, you've got this. It's still amenable to agave growing. So these things grow. For decades, they're covered in every leaf is tipped with a, you know, a razor sharp spine, very fucking dangerous plants to stand above <laughs> on a cliff. And so when it goes off, you know, the whole every year, it's just photosynthesizing, storing carbs, storing carbs. And that's why also why agaves make such a good plant for tequila is that you've got this giant heart of energy. You saw those those, you know, sharp leaf blades off with the sawtooth margins to the leaves and the long spines on the end, you saw those off. You've got basically what looks like a giant pineapple, just a, just a, a, a heart full of, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of calories of energy. And wow. so what it does, I mean, so of course you roast it and you break those carbohydrates down into simpler sugars. And now you've got this really sweet thing and then you can ferment that easily and whatever. It's actually kind of cool. I don't drink, but to, to go to an agave distillery and see how it works, it's just such a rich source of sugar. Um, so what what the plant does then is after two or three decades is it, yeah, produces this massive uh, flowering stalk that's just, there's no way that thing is not going to be visited by hummingbirds, by bats, uh, by moths, by bees. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I remember when I was in the Dominican Republic once looking at an agave species there, and it was... I, the plant was below me, but I was on uh, a very steep slope and I pulled the inflorescence. The flowers were just like, like a foot or two above my head, even though the plant was like 15 feet below me. So I pulled the flower down to look at it and get photos. And when I did it, all this nectar dumped out on me. Nice. You know, 
and it was it wasn't super sweet, but it was sweet enough to me. And that's to a hummingbird. That's all you need. You just need that's awesome. I mean, bit. is this is this kind of similar to? I mean, is this obviously? It's the same reason why like the corpse flower blooms like what five to ten years looks completely nuts smells like rotten yeah, those, flesh i've those always like, wanted to see one up close but then i just never make it and then it's oh, just so heinous. trippy that this reeks like a decomposing cool, body dude and then yeah, it just fucking... dies <laughs> terrible they smell terrible i love it it's fucking horrible <laughs> there's a there's a, there's a few plants unrelated that have evolved that same trait of 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 emitting smells uh through these osmophores that that um, mimic rotting flesh basically and it's because one of the pollinators in a lot of these ecosystems are beetles that mm. normally would be beetles and flies that would normally be attracted to a corpse you know and, and in this case they're, they're attracted to that rotting smell to lay their eggs in it um, and uh, or you know get some of the meat off of it whatever and then uh, and, and when they do that they end up pollinating I mean fuck you want to hear Crazy. You want to look for crazy pollination stories, look at the orchid family. Largest plant family on Earth, 28,000 species. Orchids have come up with some fucking ingenious ways. What? Give me, uh, give it to me. Oh, my God. I mean, a lot of them mimic insects. They, they have these, uh, you know, you got six tepals or three petals, three sepals. Um, if there's a distinction between them, between these perianth bracts, these bracts that surround the flower, basically. This is the petals, you know. Uh, and so one of those petals, it, most orchids, what they do, at least if they're in the orchidoidae subfamily or the epidendroid subfamily, I think other, I think the vanillas do it too. And probably the cypripediums do it too, of course. So they Wait, all let me jump except- in here just to set the stage for people who are on their computer. Look up just yeah. crazy looking orchids. There's the most insane. It is honestly one of the craziest flowers. There's orchids look up, that look, look like up, monkeys. Or, or here's one. Look up Dracula orchid. Look Dracula up Dracula orchid. Exactly. Dracula is a genus of orchid. Uh, look up the There's uh, a ballerina orchid. Um, what is it? Hammer orchid. Some of the terrestrial ones in Australia are fucking nuts. Look up hammer orchids. There's literally Those an orchid that looks like a flying dove. Like what in the hell is this? So what it's doing is that's mimicking. If you if you type in hammer orchid, you'll get the genus Drakea, which is I actually saw in Western Australia when I was down there, and it produces. So you've got these six six uh, perianth, three petals, three sepals. One of those petals is always, in most cases, modified into some sort of structure that either produces smell or produces uh, sugars or more often than not uh, is shaped to resemble a female insect, like a female wasp or something. And so what, what, what ends up pollinating those, I keep that fucking sound, that sound keeps throwing me off. I'm like, <laughs> Here, I'll, just, I'll, just I'll just do it next time. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's Bluetooth is connecting to the... Uh, <laughs> Did Just I leave my your Bluetooth, Mom? <laughs> did, did I leave? Did I leave my uh, music uh, app on? What is that? <laughs> so anyway, so this this fucking like drakea, this hammer orchid, it's got this labellum that resembles a fucking. This shit really fucked with me because when I learned, when I saw this plant, it was 2019, and I was just starting to really get into evolution and and how natural selection works, and really get into the nuts and bolts of it, and I just couldn't fucking wrap my head around how this thing evolved. You yeah, know, wait, how tell did, me, because I'm looking at it right now. It is nuts. And, and, and you want to know what's weird is it doesn't just it doesn't just produce this structure that resembles a female wasp. So the male comes to try and bang it and, you know, doesn't get anything. It does, you, the, the male gets nothing from it. It just just gets in, gets duped, pollinates it, gets some pollinia, these little pollen knobs, because orchids don't produce traditional pollen 
in the sense that you most you think of it you know these tiny grains in orchids uh almost all of them except for some very odd odd ones uh produce pollen that's aggregated into these little nodules called pollinia two per flower um in most cases two per flower uh and so uh anyway so the wasp comes the male wasp comes tries to bang it gets you know this thing basically throws the wasp into the uh where the pollinia are located, he gets him stuck to his head and then he flies off and, you know, ends up trying to do it to another flower. So he gets nothing from it. There's no reward. Yeah. It's just complete mimicry. So the orchids are sly fuckers. You know, they really, it's pretty cool. Yeah, at the risk of anthropomorphizing, which I always tell people not to do, orchids are fucking wily, you know. A friend of mine wrote a book called Wily wily what's some fuck underground orchids and wily violets Peter well, that's why I, I wish adaptation was based on like a real story because i really want to imagine that orchids also are you know have know. that that uh, i know well, it's but, even dude, it's this, even cooler man i yeah. mean so no, this thing really, but it doesn't it doesn't just produce this fucking that's the thing it doesn't just produce this petal that looks like a fucking female wasp it produces pheromones it produces wasp pheromones too oh my god how the fuck yeah exactly oh <laughs> it was like god, how the fuck does that you know and it turns out I, I don't think it's tweaking that certain compound a, a compound that's already present doesn't require that much tweaking to alter it so you know to mimic this pheromone to resemble this wasp pheromone too so it's but still, it's weird enough. You're like, Jesus Christ. No, man. it really like, is how, one of the craziest did... things I've ever seen. I mean, look it up because it looks like a baller. It looks like a dancing person wearing a hula skirt holding a wasp's like body like out. And, and it's just insane. Yeah. I've never you got seen the, anything you got the, like it. You got the flying duck orchid. You got the hammer orchid. You got, I mean, Western Australia really has some of the weirdest. I mean, all of Australia, but Western Australia especially. Oh my God. Uh, these flying duck orchid. Flying duck orchid. Okay, wait. And. Oh, and I need to see this flying duck orchid. I know. I wish it that we had weirder, like a video. Man. It gets weirder. No, I, I just Holy did a. I just did a video. Shit. I just did a video dude. at this guy's orchid nursery in Encinitas. Wait, I was out this, there last this month. This is not real, dude. Oh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's just mimicking an insect. It's just. I mean, what? it's. Uh, okay. You know, to us, to us, it looks like the duck. All right, we're so gonna do the rest of the duck. show on orchids, bro. This is this it is be, nuts. We're going to do the rest of the show on acid, staring at orchids. How about that? Get on Highway some 1, wild shit. dose yourself, and fucking, I mean, this is so crazy. Well, and wasn't there an orchid also, going back to the corpse flower thing, that, like, has these appendages that look like maggots, right? Yeah, there was, yeah, that was one. And that actually, I couldn't, that, I just, I couldn't find a paper on that. Again, there's just a lot of stuff that hasn't been studied, but, oh Wait, my so God, there was one. what is that? Oh, there, let okay, me, yeah, I got to yeah, tell yeah. you about. Finish your thought, finish your thought. Well, this, I'm getting distracted now, this fucking hag. You know, I, I got fucking bad ADD. We, you know, we're, we're on a roll here. But there's a, uh, there was another orchid I, I just saw in South Africa when I was there in September. Terrestrial orchid that uh, produces the rotting meat smell. Satyrium pumulum. S-A-T-Y-R-I-U-M-P-U-M-I-L-U-M. Uh, and it, it, I was getting down to photograph the fucker, you know, because it was mm -hmm. incredible looking. You see this weird morphology and I, I got to get my macro shots nice because I, I take these photographs, you know, increase the depth of field, get a good depth of field, make sure everything comes out clear. And I just my only aim is just to make these photos available for reference. If anyone's studying it, if I want to fucking draw the thing later, if because there's some really wild shit that evolves. So I'll get down. I'm crouching down to smell this fucking thing with this 105 millimeter Nikon lens. And I I'm like, God, it smells like a fucking bathroom floor drain. There's like a like a like a really nasty <laughs> gas station bathroom. 
you know, like the hydrogen sulfide and coming out of the floor drain, it kind of smells like rotting meat. And I'm like, oh my God, what is, I'm like, this thing's pollinated by flies. That's incredible. It's pollinated by flies that are attracted to this rotting smell. And then I, you know, I, this is the first I'd heard of this plant. And then I read about it later and I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's what it's doing. So Ceterium is a pretty big genus in South Africa and Ceterium pumulum, uh, yeah, it's like a small, it's maybe only four inches tall and the, the flowers are right at ground level basically and it's got this rosette of leaves and then it produces this kind of blood red uh heinous smelling flower and well, it's uh, very I trippy mean, looking I, yeah there's so many weird it. orchids it looks man. bizarre i mean yeah, well, it's, it's just weird. weird like why have why it's are so orchids cool. specifically so adept to mimicry like why are they so specialized to do this I don't know. I mean, I, why do some plants adapt to really toxic soils? Like some families mm. of plants, a lot of the brassicas can really grow in some, you know, nasty soil. Like the genus Streptanthus can, is prone to speciating and, and tolerating uh, and evolving uh, uh, tolerance to serpentine, which is the California state rock. It's a really, really toxic uh somewhat rare rock on earth it's it's you basically get it where there was at one point the subduction zone it's a blue rock like if you're ever in big sur and you see those blue uh hills those blue mountains right on the ocean and you go by like a really blue barren uh and the sort the rock is all blue or green sometimes it weathers to red in, in higher rainfall environments like in new caledonia but serpentine and, and quote-unquote ultramophic soils mophic standing for magnesium and iron fe being the the chemical symbol for iron um ultramophic soils serpentine kind of the synonymous kind of the same thing um they end you know they end up uh they're rare on the surface of the earth they're mostly these deeper rocks they're metamorphosed from deeper rocks and when they get put up on the surface of the earth they've got uh very low nitrogen uh oftentimes very low calcium and high amounts of nickel and uh very high amounts of iron iron's a plant nutrient but in high concentrations it's toxic uh, same with magnesium. And so these these uh, soils are very toxic. For Most plants can't grow on them. Like most of the invasive species in California won't grow on serpentine. They just can't. Mm-hmm. It's too, it, it stunts their growth. They can't get the nutrients they need. Um, and because these soils are so barren, they often get very hot if they're sun exposed. Like you go to like San Benito County, there's a lot of serpentine there. You know, inland, central coast, but inland, central coast, California, inland. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of old Superfund sites there too. Oh mercury, God, great! Mer- mercury mining is, you know, they would mine cinnabar and a lot of the serpentine. Joey, areas. I yeah. I have to say something really quickly. I just looked up naked man orchid, and I'm almost scared because it. Oh is, yeah, it it's is fucking so, weird. You like that? Well, it, no, literally. Like I, I actually now I'm convinced yeah. orchids are like an alien, like aliens just fucking with us because this is it's like a dude. It's a dude with a big bonnet on with his dick out. <laughs> Straight yeah. up, I'm looking at. I mean, it's un, it's inconceivable. This is not yeah. real. I'm sorry. That's a, that's the that's in the Mediterranean, I believe. Right? Yeah. I don't. Let's see. Uh, what is it? It's it. What I think. That <laughs> no, was. I mean that. that but anyway, let me, let, me, let me finish this thing about serpentine yeah, yeah, though please. as well. So <laughs> so most of these so most of these areas, yeah, that, that does look like a dick. Yeah, that's pretty hilarious. He's got a he's got it looks like a drag queen. He's got like a big <laughs> like a big pink floofy wig. It's like it's like a thinner divine. It's nice, but, uh, but anyway, but so, so serpentine okay. is a really yeah. cool thing. Serpentine is a great example of how geology directly affects plant life. That's something I was just seeing in Nuevo Leon 
uh, Mexico, where you get a lot of gypsum. You can see it in New Mexico, too. There's a lot of gypsum. In the soil, White Sands National Monument is gypsum. It's basically fucking drywall. And so it's the right. same thing. It's really hard for plants to grow in, but you get plants, evolution being what it is, mutations occurring uh, often enough, and eventually uh, mutations are going to occur that's going to enable a plant to grow on serpentine or enable a plant to grow on gypsum. Once the plant can evolve to do that, now it's got a monopoly on the habitat, no competition. It thrives. It can make a lot more of itself. Um, and boom, you've got a new species. And so serpentine was kind of my intro to see how how cool it was to see how geology was connected to uh, what's going on on the on the skin of the earth you know oh, what what happens absolutely. down below ends up affecting so it joey was, it's, joey it's, sorry it's to jump really in here cool. so, but, you're cracking up a little bit you're like getting a little bit um like you're losing service i don't know if you if if you like moved around in the house but if um no it's just the fucking wi-fi i'm on kind of yeah. sucks i don't know if it gets bad enough i'll step outside and see if i can get on a tower but uh, yeah, go yeah. climb a, go climb your local telecom tower. I mean, le- I feel like before we get to the calls, this is the this is what I'm most fa- I mean, all of this is incredible, but this is something that's always fascinated me the most. Like the time scale that plants basically exist in. Like, you know, I remember I was doing this interview at my house and it was just an hour long interview and then when I edited the footage playing it back at a faster speed, you can see the potted house plant just moving all around as if it was interacting with you, having a conversation. So I guess bringing me to the notion of just communication, like how do plants communicate with each other, communicate with us, decide, quote unquote, decide what to do and how the movement works on the scale of time that we're used to? Because plants are moving all the time, they're communicating in different ways, but we just don't see them really. And then on the other hand, you have um, you know, this, this, on the other hand, you have actual plants that move so fast that we can't perceive it at all, like mimosa pudica, otherwise known as the dancing bamboo that like folds up immediately when you touch it, um, or plants that shoot out seeds or disperse pollen with such force that it's like not perceivable to the human eye. So I guess just this notion of plant um, communication and just the, the operation at a different mode of time. Yeah, I mean, well, communication, I don't, I wouldn't be the one to talk to about that. I mean, there's, of course, you know, Michael Reisel, I, I think it's like something like 90% of, of plants have, you know, mycorrhizal symbiosis. So they, they, they have a mutualism with fungi. Uh, the majority of the fungi doing that are um, in a, a group called the glomeromycetes, which are, again, very little understood we just we've only really been able to study them and in any depth once we could analyze dna and differentiate what species is different from another because they're just so tiny um and you have to see them through a microscope they don't produce mushrooms they mostly reproduce asexually from what i understand there's not fruiting bodies that you can visibly see uh and that's the glomeromycetes would be what's known as the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi because they form arbusculars these these structures structures called arbuscules um you also have ectomycorrhizae which you know produce associated with pines and oaks for instance and produce uh you know the typical bolete mushroom or the uh typical stalk and cat mushroom amanitas some of the very poisonous ones are a good example of that um but uh, how, as far as how they communicate, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think and I think there's still a lot to 
to understand about that. It's just, or I guess, I guess, yeah, like, I guess, you know what I mean, though, about like just how plants move so much. But it's like if you're just looking at it, like your typical house plant, it's like you're not going to see it move. But if you just do a time lapse, it's really, really insane how, how yeah, there's you can see them spiraling. You can see like, like a, yeah. Doing Joey, you're, bra- you're breaking up again. Do you want to step outside maybe and see if it, um, Syncs up with your Wi-Fi a little better. How's that? Is that still a little choppy? You were great for the whole time up until right when I when we brought up Hi. this subject. How's that? How's that? Yeah, great. Is that any better? Right there. Do not move. Yeah, do not move. Yeah, I mean, it's communication and okay. movement are totally well, different topics. As you mentioned, like the communication thing is more with the fungal network. That can, you know, like in trees and stuff like that, where they can provide nutrients and share them and all that. Like, I guess I'm, I'm talking more about. I mean, that that's really fascinating too. But I guess it's not actual mechanical, topic. mechanical yeah. movement. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A good right. example. Well, something, something that comes to mind is the, the genus Stylidium, the trigger plants in Western Australia. They're in the same order as uh, sunflowers, but they're these tiny. They're generally pretty small. The flowers are pretty small, and they've got. They're called trigger plants because they've got this appendage uh, that that basically, when a pollinator lands on it, it comes down and and really quickly hits, you know, slams into the the back of this pollinator and douses it with pollen. Um, and they're very successful in, in Western Australia too. I mean, they're fucking. There's like I don't know how many species, maybe two hundred. I think there's around two hundred. But they're yeah. I mean, there was a. I, and I saw variations on this same theme. There are different species in the same genus all over Western Australia. I mean, it's, it, was, it was pretty pretty weird to see. And you can actually trigger them yourself. You touch this thing and this little appendage comes down. It's maybe, in some cases, an inch long. In some cases, inch and a half, maybe half an inch. comes down and, and, and will actually, you know, slam into your finger. And then it resets after a few minutes. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, it's like if you, I mean, that's crazy. And it's also reminds me of just carnivorous plants, like how you can die, like a plant can digest quote unquote, like reptiles and rodents. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. what the fuck? Oh like, God, the Nepenthes, the Nepenthes are weird. They, you know, they, they, there's pitcher, there's a couple unrelated plants referred to as pitcher plants. You got the Saracenias mm-hmm. in North America, you got Nepenthes in Southeast Asia and Australia. Um, you have Cephalotus follicularis, which is, uh, Related to oxalis, like the that one of the you know, there's a lot of weedy oxalis species, especially in California. Um, it's completely unrelated to it. Just a great example of convergent evolution. They both uh, they both grow in these nutrient poor soils, and that's kind of what spurs carnivory. The, or the evolution of carnivory is that you grow in a place where you can't really get that much nitrogen. Either the soil's really old and really leached, like in Western Australia, it's these these granitic soils that have just been, that are so old, there hasn't been any volcanism in a long time in Western Australia. So the soil is just very nutrient poor. So every plant that lives there has to have some kind of hustle to get nitrogen, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, associating with fungi or in the case of some of the proteas producing these roots that look like these, it looks like it's gross, but it looks like someone trimmed their pubes and threw in the wastebasket. Their fucking <laughs> roots are like these really hairy, really hairy masses and and they so they have a way of basically breaking, having enzymes that interact with the surrounding rock to extract phosphorus and nitrogen, et cetera. Or plants are parasites. This is all Western Australia again. I'm talking about 
or uh, or carnivory. And so carnivory is a great way to get around having not enough nitrogen in the soil. Is you basically just you find a way to utilize another nitrogen source. You know, in the case in this case it's insects. But there's also a species in the Penthes, which is this is fucking hilarious, called the toilet pitcher, uh, and I believe it's in Borneo. But it's it's got you know these what these pitchers are just modified leaves, and so this pitcher evolves. It's got this this it looks like a little vase, and then you've got this upper appendage on it looks like looks like a little lid, like a lid that could hinge shut, and this lid secretes this white nectar. Um, not like a nectar, it's like a starchy exit. It looks kind of like uh, like toothpaste, like somebody smeared toothpaste on this thing. And this this um, uh, species, I believe it's a species of marsupial or some kind of rodent comes down, and it, it's attracted to this this white toothpaste-looking exit. It, it eats it, and then it takes a shit, and it shits right in the pitcher, <laughs> and boom, there's your wow. nitrogen. And it's fucking gross to us, but it's also kind of ingenious. It's pretty cool. You know, and then of course there's just all these pitchers in the swamps of North America, another nitrogen, nitrogen poor environment, and they just eat bugs. You know, and it works great for them. Yeah, I mean it's crazy that there's like what 600 or so different species of carnivorous plants, and it's really fascinating. Of course, everyone knows about the Venus flytrap, but like this is a really extensive, uh, extensive plant that has many different facets, as you're talking about, and can. And it's just crazy to think of how this all like evolved, Joey. Yeah, well, it evolves all the time. I mean, it's even crazy to think that none of these or a lot of these plants are completely unrelated to each other. So right. this this trait is not a result of, of shared ancestry. It just evolved on its own via mutation. You know, it's selection by environment mutation in, in long, very long amounts of time. In some cases, you don't need that much time. In some cases, it happens overnight. You get a whole genome duplication, you get a polyploid event, you get suddenly, you know, one generation, double the number of chromosomes you have. Uh, you can you can speciate instantly. Well, not instantly, however long it takes for that fucking seed to germinate and, uh, you know, meiotic wow. division to happen prior to that, et cetera. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's kind of the, that's the thing about evolution that's so cool. I mean, you get you get the same thing resulting uh, as a result of uh, the same same climatic conditions, the same environmental conditions. Right, it's different places I, of the world. It's like you can have this similar carnivorous plant happening in Australia, another one that completely evolves in a totally different way here. And does the same like thing. Said, yeah, it does the same thing. It just as a result of dude. Um, so yeah. we're about to take calls. I want to, of course, get to the big picture, but I just wanted to conclude this this movement and communication thing with with just, if you just like time lapse a forest, for example, it it almost looks like the ocean like waves of the trees pulsating, moving, climbing toward the sun and the light and closing and opening. And it's just a complete other world, Joey. It's something that we can't perceive, but it is truly astounding. Um, but I want to, of course, ask you about this notion of kind of rewilding uh, the kill your lawn movement. Talk about what this is and how people can contribute in a positive way to our plant neighbors the kill well the kill your lawn thing i think just comes from well the, there's this whole ethos planet but i think the, the base ethos is just that it feels good to have a connection to plants it feels good to grow things i, I mean i mean people that say i can't grow anything i always kill anything well fucking keep doing it and keep trying think about what you're doing you know why did this thing die i wonder what happened did i not forget to water it did i overwater it i'm not thinking about something right when i do this you know so don't give up you, there's always a you know, it's in your fucking genome, 
is a semi-conscious bipedal bipedal primate like we all are. <laughs> I mean no, I mean no offense. Semi-conscious all, is the operative fall, word. We all fall under that category. It's in your genome to, to develop a relationship with these things. I don't, I'm not even being woo-woo here. I just mean cultivating them, growing them. It's they're what support us. They're the base of our fucking food chain. So uh, keep trying, but it, the, keep trying to grow. If you suck at it, just keep doing it. But the first step, I mean, of course, we've you know we've got these. If you're lucky enough to own your house, or you're renting somewhere. Even better, just make sure your landlord's not a prick and he doesn't care if he's, you know, plants and stuff. But the, the idea behind it is habitat is continuing to be lost, you know, at an alarming rate. We've got this kind of death cult society, not all of it, but a lot of it, uh, that, that just keeps gobbling up land. Our whole economic premise is, you know, unfettered growth, keep developing, keep swallowing up, you know, if an empty lot or an empty parcel of land is a wasted opportunity. It's a really fucked up mindset. And hopefully we evolve out of it at some point. But in the meantime, uh, what's happening is we're losing more and more habitat. And so as we lose more habitat, we lose the animals that that live there. We lose the pollinators. We end up losing some of the fungi. We're, we're taking apart the biosphere. It's really sad. And it's even more unfortunate that we, we are just beginning to understand how this stuff works. I mean, fuck, the field of ecology. When did Aldo Leopold write San County Almanac? What was it, fucking 70 years ago? Like, we're just starting to understand how this stuff works, and we're already destroying it. It's like it's like setting fire to a fucking library of masterpieces before you've read any of them, or when you've only read, you know, a handful of them. So the way around that, of course, is <clears throat> since we're destroying habitat, now we've got to create habitat <clears throat> in places where we can. You know, if it's vacant lots, if it's your fucking park if there's if it's your front yard you know and the, we've got all this space which in you know the wasted space that we have all this available space is the lawn it's this really goofy fucking idea yeah great you know lawns can be great if you're playing soccer in them if you got if you're running if you just want a spot to lay down and picnic and read a fucking book that's great keep those but there's a lot of there's a lot of fucking lawn out there and there's a lot of grass it's just a total waste of space what does it do why do we have this here we, we a lot of cases People just have a, a lawn because it came with the house or it came with the place they're <laughs> renting. If they don't live in a park, they don't know what to do with it. You know, it's just, oh, yeah, I just have and then now, you know, you got this kind of suburban dad mentality. A lot of cases. Well, now it gives me a sense of duty. I get to go out and I get to mow it. Maybe I get to buy a riding lawnmower, which, you know, it gives me, a, you know, it, <laughs> I'm in fucking Texas now. So this is the shit out of here. People love fucking mowing. They're addicted to mowing. They will mow a fucking AstroTurf if you, if you give an opportunity. <laughs> so... So the, we're trying to change that basically is get people to think about this, this thing is like, okay, this is a kind of a pointless, like you grow this, this grass, you cut it. It's this, none of this would never occur in nature. You never get, I mean, grass doesn't want to be cut anyways. You know, most, most grasses, prairies, savannas grow tall. They, they send out a flowering stalk. They're pollinated by wind. They produce seeds. Uh, so this, the lawn itself is unnatural, quote unquote. If you, I don't even really like that word, but it's the the base of the idea is it's kind of a waste of space. If you're not using it to just picnic, if it's not, you know, you need these grassy areas and parks. You know, you need places to play play whatever sport you're into, whatever. But it, for, there's a lot of just wasted space that exists in the form of the lawn, and people just do it unthinkingly because it's just what they've been told to do. Well, the idea that we're trying to get out there is basically show you could. Get rid of your fucking lawn, create habitat, put a veggie garden in, create habitat for yourself, create habitat for the, for the native ecosystem, for the pollinators, the birds. I mean, if you build it, they will come. You, you get rid of, you want to start small, it seems too big, just start 
dig a hole in your lawn, plant some shit in there, you know, give it like a, whatever you plant, give it a foot or two radius of, of distance where you've removed the rest of the lawn. So it doesn't have any competition from the grass and just, uh, you know, cause I, you know, it doesn't need to be this project that happens immediately, but the idea is you're, you're creating habitat, you build it, they will come. You'll, you'll start seeing, you know, really cool insects show up. Some of the native bees that we're losing. People are always concerned about the honeybees. Fuck the honeybees. What about the native bees? There's some really cool well, exactly, native exactly. bees we get. I mean, these like, you know, metallic blue bees. These are these, all kinds of just stuff that we overlook. You know, overall, it's about creating a, a habitat because the habitat's still continuing to be lost and destroyed by us as sprawl occurs, as we take more and more for ourselves and leave less and less for the rest of the biosphere. So, what I try to tell people is you can create this in your front yard, you know, yeah, <laughs> really exactly. this long ramble, this long rambling narrative. I just went on the point is you can just create this fucking habitat in your front yard. And it's, and I think the thing that a lot of people realize too, whether what side of the political spectrum you're on, no matter what you do for a living is it, it ends up being really fucking rewarding. It's not just about, Oh, I want to create this beautiful, it's very pretty and blah, blah. It's like, no, you, you, you interact with it. You start seeing different pollinators showing up. You start seeing up different, you start seeing different species of bees, bees or birds. You start seeing different species of birds show up to eat the pollinators or to get the seeds of, of whatever you planted, you know, like great example, just, you know, lowest common denominator, sunflowers. There's, that big disc flower matures into hundreds of seeds, which then feed birds. You get all start seeing these cool birds uh, popping up. You know, I never saw that one before. I never really looked. What is that well, thing? Like, why does it look like that? I, I want, saw like a green bird show up. You know, it's it's just uh, engaging with the environment around you, interacting with it. You know, absolutely. And I just want to jump in here to say, get in the call queue if you have any questions or stories about plants, because we're going to wrap it up here. So definitely get in the call queue, anyone who's listening live, if you want to engage in the conversation. And I just want to dovetail off that by, yeah, this concept of like rewilding your own garden. I mean, going back to the notion of everyone has a lawn, this green lawn with the white picket fence, and you have the nuclear family. This really kind of originates from like this suburban sprawl idea of, you know, the 50s. Um, and then it just, kind of just set in there where we still do it and it doesn't really make sense and it goes back to that idea that you're talking about the symbiosis that we have with our local community and and natural plant species that surround us and how we you know we always want to plant like things that are just completely foreign to our local habitat and instead of what is rewilded from our immediate surroundings because then you bring the local insects then you bring the local birds and then it kind of just flourishes from there. And it kind of reminds me of that notion of just that everything kind of manifests from localization and understanding how we um, how we fit into our local environment. Like, for example, you know, if there's like a local insect that stings you, usually you can find some sort of plant that can counteract that sting like that that exists just in your surroundings but we're just completely separate we have no idea what's edible we have no idea what's poisonous we go out there we'd all die within a fucking day if we were just left out in the wild right outside of our houses and it is just really crazy to think about because it shouldn't be that way joey and you know what after talking to you i think i'm gonna quit my job doing journalism and i think i'm just gonna become a, a vigilante botanist too because what the fuck else is there really when you think about it? <laughs> it's fun. I'll tell you, it's enjoyable, man. It gives, it's, you know, it's, I mean, I don't, the YouTube's fun and all that, but I'm just doing it so I can keep, 
fucking, you know, looking at plants. I'm just, that's, <laughs> and teaching people. I mean, that's the important thing to me. So, but, you know, you, you mentioned it's, you know, we're, we're disconnected from it. There's so much we don't know about the world around us. I mean, two things. One, I mean, nothing defines a location like the plants mm-hmm. there. Nothing defines a location like, nothing gives a sense of place like what grows there and that the fucking birds that live there and the insects that are around there and the smells you encounter walking through a forest, whether it's in fucking new England or an Oak woodland in California. I mean, that's what defines sense of place. And it's not the fucking Panda express and the Walmart. I mean, those are the, the places of anti-place if anything, I mean, they could be anywhere, you know, they're just garbage. Um, but also, I, I, you know, on another note of, of having a disconnection, I mean, I lived in, I grew up in Chicago, right? I, I had no idea what any of the native plants in Chicago were uh, for the first, I don't know, 26, 27 years of my life. It wasn't until I started seeking them out. I mean, most of the habitat had been destroyed. There was nowhere to encounter this stuff. And and it was only after living in California and then I'd go back to visit. You know, California's got a really thriving native plant community. There's a lot of people in native plants there. There's a lot of awareness there. So I took that same awareness. And I wonder what grows in Chicago. I wonder what was native here on the prairies. I learned about prairies and oak savannas i learned about i learned about these fucking phenomenal plants that were really hard to find they only existed in these little crumbs of habitat that had been left you know wolf road prairie in chicago was a great example it was this this small parcel of land sandwiched between a shopping center and an office park and it was filled completely with native plants i mean these really cool tall grass prairie wildflowers, like a member of the sunflower family that produces leaves that are three feet long in some cases and sends up a flowering stalk that's like, you know, 11 feet tall. Uh, just just fascinating stuff. And yeah, I, I didn't know what that was until I went seeking it out. So that's, I think that's important too, is to get, get people to realize you got to, in some cases, depending on where you are, especially in Eastern North America, you got to seek this stuff out, but it's there. I mean, you'll find it. You look hard enough, you'll find it. There's some little crumbs left. And so go go see what's growing there, you know, take pictures of it, uh, get a guidebook if you need to, use the app iNaturalist, find out what's growing there, and then see how you can bring those plants, not out of habitat, but bring basically plant those plants in your own front yard or, or neighborhood park or whatever, you know, just uh, bring that habitat home. Yeah, Joey, this is uh, Mike here. Um, I'm going to talk instead of dropping that that woe drop, which I will get rid of for the next show. But <laughs> okay. uh, anyways, um, yeah, you know, it. Like you're, I what you're talking about about like rewilding and getting rid of your lawn and planting local plants. I really love that you made the point that it's not just about the plants; it's about the entire ecosystem that depends on the plants. That then immediately springs to life once you introduce like even a tiny little ecosystem there. And and it reminds me of you know uh, me and Abby live here in a very much a concrete jungle part of Los Angeles, and there's this tree in front of our uh, apartment building that it flowers very, very rarely. But whenever it does flower, um, I can see from my window, there's this bee, this giant, fluffy, bright, solid yellow bee that just comes. And they, it gets a, it's one of those like really clumsy bees. Like it looks like those big fat beetles that flies around all bumping into things and stuff. And this bee just comes and like inspects every flower. And I haven't even seen it like go in the flower. He just like looks at all of them. And he's like, no, nah, I don't want that one. But I was just so like happy about seeing this bee and like I looked it up and found out what it was. Apparently it's called a, a nicknamed a teddy bear bee. But it was just so oh, cool. cool. Like every time I see flowers on this tree, I get so excited because I'm like, oh, I think that bee is going to come back. It's, it's probably a different bees I'm seeing, but they, they all look the same. And I'm just it just makes me think like, like, where are these things? Like, where is their hive? Like, how are they out here? Like, it yeah. seems like such a big clunky 
like inefficient thing, yet somehow it's able to thrive even in this environment. I'm just so the amount of happiness that it brings me just to see this guy. Um, and it just, you know, so the idea of, of creating these ecosystems and, and so much more that you can bring is really, really cool. And, you know, like talking about not just in your own lawn, but public parks, the first video I, I saw of yours was when you're talking about the like gorilla tree planting you did in a public park. Cause like, it's funny, apparently like the state or the city, like doesn't even know what to plant in their own public parks. And so you had gone around and like years prior, like planted these different trees that would perform much better and were more local to the area. Uh, And so uh, that's a very fun, cool way of like guerrilla environmentalism that I think people can take part in outside their own lawns. But just to like clarify, like for, um, and we have two callers that we're going to get to, uh, we're going to get to Omar in one second, but first, um, so just for people to be able to do this, like if anyone's listening who wants to start killing their lawn or do it all at once, it's it's not that intimidating, really. It's just about finding out what is local and just starting to introduce it, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a great resource is I tell all people this is iNaturalist, the app iNaturalist. It's, it could be a little buggy at times, but overall, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty great resource. They've got this uh, artificial intelligence um, uh software on it that if you take a picture of something the ai can in many cases uh compare that that picture with what else has been photographed in the area and give you the genus if not the genus and species of what that that plant is and you can also use the explore feature on it you know if you're using the android version it's got uh this feature called it's got like a little tab you click explore you could type in anything you type in sunflower family you could type in pea family uh wait for the suggestion to come up of the P family for basically you click on it and then down where it says location, you click my location or you can search by your state or whatever. Then you hit search and you get a list of everything in that family that's been observed there. And then the, like little thumbnail photos and it's, it's fucking great. I mean, it's basically like an online field guide. You can use it to explore what native plants uh, have been observed in your area. And every, every native, every taxon page, the, the page for the species itself is linked to the Wikipedia page for that plant species too so then you can go read about it it's a it's a really great resource short of that you can also find you know a native joey dang did we lose joey just dropped uh i still see him in the room so i still think he's here it's okay though because we are pretty much done if he doesn't come back but we are going to take the one caller i don't know if i'm qualified to take it but I well, did. Well. But I did just see someone in the chat say, "Look up swaddled baby orchid." And man, I don't know, man. These orchids. I feel like I I want to quit my job and just study orchids now. Like I'm blown away, blown away. Um. All right. So we're gonna go to Omar for the question uh, while we wait for Joey it, to try to. Join. Yeah, you there, hey, Joey? You're back. Hey. We no, I don't now. think that's Joey. I think it's Omar. Or is no, it it's Joey? Joey. Oh hell yeah. No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh cool. Oh, you're back. We lost sweet. you for a minute, but now you're here. Um, anyways, we're going to try to take a oh, call. Shit. This is Omar. Omar, we, we hear you, Joey. Omar, uh, just make sure to come <laughs> off mute and please plant questions or stories only. Omar, are you there? Come hey. off mute. Say, hey, Omar. How's everybody? Hi, Abby. Hey. Hi, Joey. Um, I, so I'm Mexican, and I remember hearing this story of um, Monsanto corn, um, basically like pollinating... Uh, Mexican corn uh, and fucking up like hundreds of species that were cultivated for thousands of years. And there's some 
there's some recent uh, push yeah by activists uh to try to ban uh genetically modified corn um and i was wondering like what your opinion is on uh genetically modified organisms a good friend of mine is um has a background in hard science and we kind of got into an argument about it uh and i'm kind of not not in favor of it um because we don't know enough to know like what what kind of impact uh it's going to have uh with other plants and our health and our environment i mean everything's like a delicate balance and when we're messing at that level uh with organisms like it's hard to predict what what's going to be like the end effect but yeah i was just wondering what your what your opinion is of genetically modified organisms well first off i would say fuck monsanto but second i would also say i'm i think it's really cool i think it's got a lot of potential i mean genetic modification has been occurring for ten thousand you know ten thousand fifteen thousand years uh via selective breeding of course the fact that it can now occur with you know with the advent of technologies like uh crispr or just you know inserting genes into uh into other plants inserting a gene from one plant that's unrelated into a, another plant as is happening with the american chestnut i think there's a lot of potential for it i mean it, it's it's like any technology it's it's not black and white it's 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 dependent on what the use is what the motive is uh humans of course can fuck anything up um with a lack of oversight but i think you know genetic modification could be the one thing that saves the american chestnut tree from extinction and all it is in that case uh is taking a gene from wheat that breaks down oxalic acid and inserting it into the genome of the American chestnut. Um, there's very little that could go wrong in that case. Um, and it's currently being tested. And I got, I hope it, I hope they get those seeds out there because um, background on the American chestnut is it was wiped out in a few decades, basically functionally extinct in the wild. Uh, there's still a few trees out there in, you know, Pennsylvania and uh, eastern parts of North America, eastern seaboard. Um, but they just, they stump sprout. That's the one thing that saved the tree. It's it got ability to just send up stump sprouts once the top has died and start growing again. But they only get so tall and then they're infected with this invasive tree pathogen again. Um, Cryphonectria parasitica. And the way that the fungus kills the tree is it, it as it, eats the tree bark, the living tree uh, xylem and phloem, not the bark, but the living vasculature of the tree, the, the pumping tubes, uh, it, it, oxalic acid is produced. And so that, that is how uh, these trees end up dying, is from oxalic acid. So if you insert a gene from wheat into the American chestnut tree that, can, uh, that produces an enzyme that breaks down oxalic acid, now these trees are immune to it. Uh, and of course, it's not just about saving this tree. It's these trees were the base of the entire ecosystem. You know, they were a huge food source. They're in the oak family, but unlike oaks, they produce seeds every year. It's not just, it's not just, uh, it's not just every, you still there? Yeah. 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 We're still here. Okay. All right. Just, just making sure I'm, I'm in South Texas. The service here is pretty shitty. Uh, so it's, you know, so oaks or oaks produce acorns every four or five years. They have mass years. Chestnuts produce, uh, uh, seeds, which are basically acorn size, uh, every every year. So you get this massive food source that feeds the ecosystem, feeds the the things that eat it. The flowers are insect pollinated. 
Um, and so there you go. It's feeding when it flowers. It feeds when it fruits. And, and they're, they're basically gone from the ecosystem. So if we could bring it back, it would be pretty incredible. And the only way we can really do it now is is genetic modification. You know, I mean, they've been trying to back cross with Chinese trees, which are immune to this fungus. That's where this fungus came from, was, was from Asia. Uh, it was introduced into the uh, New York State. I think it was first picked up, first noticed in the Bronx Zoo uh, in the early 1900s. But if we, I mean, that, you know, we've been trying to back cross for decades, and it just hasn't worked. I mean, the the Chinese trees look much different from the American ones. They don't get as big. They don't. It's it's a much different tree. So genetic modification, it, it can be really cool. It can also be a disaster. It's not black and white. It just depends. You know, it's it depends on the the uh, this how we use it. I want to uh, add to something that Omar said, and Omar, thank you for that question. That's a really great question and something that I've been contemplating yeah, for a long time, especially because I hate Monsanto so much, and I know that they've really been um, just parasitic in their patents of GMO foods and their crackdown on small farmers who just – this cross-pollination that's really – uh, really just ridiculous because you can't prevent it really. And then you have the super bugs and super weeds, which I don't actually know how we can stop that because it just seems like there's no slowing down of GMO crops. Joey, do you have any comment on just the, you know, the well, proliferation of like super bugs and yeah, super I, weeds? Yeah, I mean, what, what they are, but I mean, it all comes down to herbicide use, which is I'm, I'm not 100% against herbicide use either. I'm, I'm against it in, in the lazy form of doing it. it you know, it, Yeah, but it when you, let me just explain to people really quickly, uh, and maybe, maybe, I, maybe you can correct me on this, but just to explain to our audience really quickly, like there are GMO-resistant seeds that have like the built-in nature that make them easier to adapt to like Monsanto's specific Roundup-ready herbicide, right? I mean that that right, can't right, be right. Good, yeah, they've, right. <laughs> like, right. So so now you get to, you get to buy the Roundup. You get to buy you get to buy Roundup for Monsanto, and you also get to buy the Roundup adapted seeds. But you're also dousing all your food with these these fucking chemicals, and then um, you know I, I just the I, I guess that that's where I get kind of yeah. skeptical about. It. I mean that's that's obviously I, I don't I'm not a, like I was going to say I'm not against herbicide. I think in, in you know in, in terms of removing invasive species which are a fucking really big threat i mean invasive species can cause extinction they can cause biodiversity loss uh and that's a whole other can of worms to get into itself i love talking about invasive invasion biology because it's there's some people who really don't believe in it and deny it and it's a shame but uh whatever it's it's, it's something i've seen you know wherever i go invasive species causing extinction and biodiversity loss and ecosystem decline so you need, in some of those cases, you need herbicides. I mean, you've got to, the only way to get rid of like salt cedar, a.k.a. tamarisk, is to cut it and spot apply herbicide to it and keep going back. I mean, because it can just re-sprout from the roots, whatever. But the way that herbicides used in farming, you know, just basically to sterilize a soil and get rid of weeds and get rid of weeds that might compete with crop plants is, is awful. And I mean, there's a number of herbicides. It's not just Roundup. It's just, to use this stuff wantonly, uh, is is pretty terrible, and I, I think a lot of it has obviously got very toxic effects. And so, um, I don't know what was the fucking question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, I think that's a fucked up. I think that's a very fucked up use of of GMOs. You know, I mean, it, it's not. I don't think that's that's the the potential for that technology that we want to be exploring. I don't think, you know, it's it's right up. It's just a way for the the private company basically to 
to exploit it and capitalize on it, et cetera. But mm -hmm. that having been said, I, there's, there's a, still a lot of potential in, in GMOs. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's here to stay regardless. So it's yeah, just, it's um, gotta be regulated, you know? Joey, I have a question from the chat. That's kind of cool. Uh, before I take a call from Lance, who is waiting on the line, and then we'll wrap up here in a second. But uh, the question in the chat from Tom is uh, about how a uh, ginkgo biloba apparently was like one of the only living things that survived the atomic bomb blast in Hiroshima. And just yeah. if you didn't, if you knew anything about that resilience, and if there's any, you know, like you're talking about, like taking positive traits from certain things to modify others. Like, is there like some super survival gene in there that we could apply to other things to eliminate food waste and stuff like that. So interesting question from Tom. Thank you for that in the chat. Um, and then before uh, you comment on that, let's see if Lance can come off mute and see if you have, uh, we can get your question there as well. Lance, you're on mute. Ladybug Lance. Little okay, Lance, Lance, while you figure that out, Joey, do you have any comment on the ginkgo biloba uh, being like, I guess, the cockroach surviving nuclear winter? I mean, well, ginkgo's been through a lot of shit, man. I mean, ginkgo, <laughs> ginkgo's a very, it's a very old lineage of tree. One of the, the oldest surviving lineages. It's, um, and you'll find fossil species. I forget when it evolved. I think maybe it was Triassic. Maybe it was earlier. I don't know. But there's very old fossils of, of other species of ginkgo uh, that have been found and uncovered. In the case of whether it was Hiroshima or Nagasaki, whatever, uh, wherever the tree was that survived that, that blast, I mean, ginkgos can, can you know, re-sprout from dormant buds, um, at, you know, anywhere. I mean, they're very, they're very easy to root from cutting. Uh, so in the case of what exactly happened there, I don't know. I mean, God, I would have loved to see documentation of that, uh, you know, in, in the macabre sense of... I would have loved to have been event. there when the Hiroshima blast went off. Yes. Hey, I feel there. like that sometimes. Be a ginkgo I think we on all the, have, on the wall. Know? Be a ginkgo biloba on the wall. I'm gonna, I'm get, I'm, Man. I'm going to take my toaster for a bath. But, uh, but uh, anyway, but um, <laughs> no, I mean, in the case of how exactly that came back, I mean, that's, that's a pretty extreme case of survival, you know, being, being scorched. I don't know how close it was to the epicenter of the blast. I don't know. I mean... I assume it was just reduced to a stump and then it just re-sprouted, but, um, but it's, it's not surprising. I mean, when, when you've got the ability to produce, you know, to produce new shoots from dormant buds and your whole, uh, you know, epidermis is covered in dormant buds, I mean, it's pretty easy to come back once things have settled down and the catastrophe is over. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, ginkgo's, like I said, ginkgo's been through a lot of shit in its evolutionary lineage. So I guess in some ways it doesn't surprise me. That's incredible. Uh, we have Lance on the line now for one final question before we wrap up. Lance, are you there? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, uh, Abby. You're so great. Such a uh, uh, intrepid, you know, journalist. All that. You don't need some anonymous uh, platitudes. You know how great you are. And thank you, Joey and Abby, for the you know for the convo. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. Somebody was talking on another thing in the last time you had your your show about like plants and that we don't know a lot about. You know how well, the intelligence almost of potentially of tree. Somebody was explaining how a Lance, no Lance, 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 live. Lance, no Lance, you're breaking up, my friend. Lance, to make new 
The data connection. The data connection's lost. Ladybug Lance, my friend. And so, so we, we lost Lance, but I. What about the it's the connection. He's probably using Spectrum. I bet he's using Spectrum. That okay. plants can't or sense that we think of it as human. Can you hear me okay, now? Okay, Ladybug here, Lance, we're no so sorry. Powers. I know I that last time you, we tried to get you as well. Next time, get a better connection. Well, I, I think I, I heard part of his question, and it was about plant intelligence and how some can like give up nutrients for others and things like that. And so I guess, Joey, since it's the last question, uh, I'm sorry we couldn't fully hear you, Lance. You were all tripped out. Uh, but, uh, Joey, oh. do you have any response to the the plant intelligence stuff. Yeah, I just I, fucking spectrum, man. The same thing's been happening to me. Shitty, shitty Wi-Fi, shitty internet company, yeah. man. And it's a and it's a monopoly, so you can't switch companies. Fucking if you're, no, if you're you're dissatisfied, you can no go, other one. Hey, you, you you can go rub dog shit on their mailbox, though. You know, you go, you go yeah, to company headquarters and anyway, anyway, yeah, plant intelligence. Well, I mean, here's the way I think about it. I don't know, you know, I don't get, I don't. If there's a way that it happens, it's not going to be the way that we as humans imagine it to happen, you know? We tend to anthropomorphize things. There's no way to quantify it at present. There's studies being done. I think, if anything, when we talk about it as people, we do it because it's something that makes us feel good. Uh, as, as, as far as the science goes behind it, I don't doubt it. I mean, I've certainly eaten enough fucking psilocybin in my life to, to feel a connection there, whether it really exists or not. Um, and whether it really exists or not, I don't care. I mean, I get something from interacting with these organisms, uh, whether or not they really do have sentience or not. You know, they do something for me. But, I mean, again, they're, they're, their cells are dividing, they're metabolizing, they're respiring, they're photosynthesizing. I mean, there's, there's something there. Uh, as far as whether we can quantify it, um, whether it occurs in the way that we think of it, I don't know. You know, there's, we don't know that yet. And, and I, it's cool to think about, uh, it's fun for stoner conversations, but I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's like, what do you say? It's like, uh, you know, is there a God or not? It's the same thing. I mean, probably not, but maybe there is, I don't know. But I mean, cool I mean all about. I have to do is look at some of these orchid photos and you tell me how there's, that there's well, that, yeah, you know I, mean, I mean, that that is, there's a, you know, I, I can get a little woo-woo at times. I don't like to talk about it because it's, <laughs> it sounds wacky, but I mean, obviously there's something, there's something there. I'll just leave it at that. You know, there's, yeah. Uh, how could, how could something be alive and not, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know where to, how to fucking start with that, but you know, it would certainly help to be able to quantify it. We haven't been able to do that yet. So. Well, I can barely articulate myself with the human language, let alone quantify the intelligence that I feel yeah. you know, when when you're out in nature there's something that really right. is penetrative penetrative of just your innermost who, what it is to be human what it is to be alive and what it means to be connected on this planet joey santori check it out on twitter check out crime pays but botany doesn't find him on social media find him on youtube find him on means tv joey you are amazing thank you so much for opening so many eyes to connecting to our world, to rewild ourselves, our yards, our communities, everything else. Thank you so much for all of your insight, for your thought-provoking conversation. I'm definitely going to be closely following your work. And thank you so much for calling, I'm sorry, coming on Dosed.
Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. This shit, uh, shit can save people, you know? So. Everyone get the call-in app if you want to join the conversation live next time and actually participate with a question of your own. If you're listening on the desktop, you can still listen on callin.com. You can actually listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We have many more amazing guests lined up for you, so be sure to subscribe on callin.com. Don't miss a single episode. Thank <laughs> you.